You're listening to the Art of Move podcast, hosted by Dr. William Raybar and Anthony Manuel, where we attempt to create a grand unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, and training. If you enjoy these episodes, you can watch them streamed live on nofilter.net, where you can interact directly and have all your questions answered in real time. Gentlemen, welcome to the Art of Fuel podcast with myself, Anthony Manuel. I'm joined today by Dr. Sean Baker, who I'm really, really excited to have on. He's been the most requested nutrition guest on the show. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Dr. Sean Baker, he is an orthopedic surgeon, international speaker, best-selling author of The Carnivore Diet, and world champion athlete. He's a leading authority on nutritional therapy and raising awareness about how it affects chronic diseases and the CMO of Revero Health. His views extend beyond just how diet can influence health. His content inspires critical thinking about challenging topics like ecology, such as regenerative agriculture and the environmental impact of our consumption habits, ethics, and warns against censorship. Uh, Revero is a community platform helping people implement a carnivore-based elimination diet. They provide coaching, online group meetings, VIP forum, and the largest library of recipes, research articles, and success stories. They've recently succeeded in their goal of raising $5 million for their initial seed round. They're looking for a promising move forward in the right direction. And I'm really, really excited to be talking to you about your work with Revero, with how you've helped people reverse chronic disease, some of the... um, just some of the awareness that you're raising about regenerative agriculture and talking about how a carnivore lifestyle can really help people in terms of their health. So first of all, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. I'm really, really excited to talk to you. Yeah, great. And, and thanks for having me. It's always nice to, to get to reach out to new audiences and I appreciate the opportunity. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. So for the people who might be unfamiliar with the carnivore way of living, uh, I know there's a lot of confusion about car- the, the definitions of, say, carnivore and animal-based and, you know, ketovore. Just off the top of your head, in terms of, you know, your experience with the diet, the lifestyle, working with so many people, how do you define a carnivore diet and what is the actual protocol as it relates to, like, if you're if you're really authentically carnivore? Yeah, I mean, so whether whether what you need to do to get healthy and what a carnivore diet may not be the same thing. And so if we're talking strict definitions here, a carnivore diet is basically animal products, basically only animal products. The only real exceptions to that are maybe a little bit of seasoning and, and maybe some people use like coffee and things like that. But generally, it's pretty much just meat, just eggs, you know, plus or minus dairy. Some people include organ meats. But that's 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 a strict definition. Now, again, I don't get dogmatic. I'm not it's not I'm not pushing an ideology, I'm, I'm saying, let's see what, what helps you. For some people, a strict, you know, nothing but animal products diet is incredibly powerful and incredibly helpful. And, and, and many people do uh, very well with that, either for a limited period of time or for extended periods of time. And so that's what that definition is. Now, what ultimately do you need to do to improve your health? It may be some version of that. I think animal products are uh, not only not bad for you, but extremely healthy. And I think sort of liberally using them in your diet is, is generally a good idea. Mm. And, you know, there's obviously a lot of, I don't want to dive too heavily into the, you know, the arguments about saturated fat and cholesterol being related to heart disease. Cause I, I feel like you've covered that quite a bit, but in terms of some of the health outcomes that you've seen with people adopting this animal, you know, like this animal product based nutritional protocol, what are some of the biggest uh, health turnarounds that you've seen just from implementing that that particular lifestyle intervention? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we we basically see the things that are most common commonly get get uh, you know improved, and so we we see a lot of uh, obesity, we see a lot of mental health issues, we see a lot of uh, digestive issues uh, and uh, uh, musculoskeletal issues. Those things predominate. What most people have, most people have arthritis. Many people are overweight. A lot of people have depression and anxiety, and a lot of people have digestive issues. And so those things routinely and very, very frequently improve. In addition to that, I mean, we see a lot of autoimmune issues that go away. Things like uh, psoriasis uh, has been particularly effective uh, with this eczema, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, you know, the psoriatic arthritis. A lot of digestive issues like Crohn's disease and also colitis and IBS also seem to improve. I mean, people from with, from the mental health side, I mean, obviously depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, mm. borderline personality disorder, Tourette's syndrome, uh, even PTSD has seen improvement with this. So, I mean, it's, it's really kind of, I don't want to call it a panacea, but it kind of is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, I think, you know, when we look at chronic disease, 
most chronic diseases are impacted by nutrition. I think that's that's pretty clear. I think most people would understand that. And when your when your nutrition improves across the board, you generally see improvements. Now, some people completely get off all medications, completely reverse their diseases. Other people, you know, kind of have you know less of a less of a, a robust response. But it's been pretty rare where I haven't seen somebody go on this diet and see significant improvements in in one or many areas. Mm. The mental health one is very, very fascinating to me because I, I know someone personally who was on a vegan diet and then started implementing meat and reversed some chronic depression. I was vegan for two years um, as a lapse of personal judgment, you know, for moral reasons and uh, and experienced really like intense clinical depression. And it basically reversed itself within a couple of weeks of eating meat. And I was kind of curious, um, and I was following almost, uh, you know, a borderline carnivore diet because I'd experienced so such intense leaky gut issues that I couldn't even eat vegetables and I couldn't have any carbohydrate without, you know, experiencing a tremendous amount of gastric distress. So, you know, f I, I didn't really think about it as a carnivore diet at the time, but I was basically just eating, uh, you know, ground beef, steak, and bone broth for over a month and my, my mental health issues resolved themselves completely in that, in that month. And I was kind of curious if you have any speculation in terms of the, the mechanics of why a, a person's mental health would experience so much better outcomes with the inclusion of meat in their diet. Do you think it's the, um, the exclusion of certain things or the inclusion of extra meat or, you know, maybe a little column, a little column B like in, mechanically, yeah. what do you think is happening there? Well, I mean, if you, there's there's quite a bit of literature that can, we can talk about that that supports why meat and things in meat tend to be beneficial for mental health, and I do think it's a little bit of both. I think, uh, you know, I think there's a, a pretty profound relationship between gut physiology and and uh, brain physiology. I mean, you know, just like our brain is an organ, just like any other part of our body, and what affects one affects them all. And so we see uh, perhaps with gut dysfunction, whether it's coming through dysbiosis or hyperpermeability, as you mentioned, kind of the so-called leaky gut, that does reflect in brain permeability. So we see leaky, blood, mm. leaky gut and then leaky uh, blood-brain barrier. And so we see some of those things coming on. So that's going on for sure. I mean, we see some of the physiology with uh, uh, sort of dramatic energy swings. And when we're on more of a uh, higher glucose, you know, uh, labile situation, which sometimes a higher carbohydrate diet can lead to that. Uh, meat has a number of compounds that have been shown. Uh, in fact, there was a nice study out of Stanford in 2018 looking at uh, relative carnitine deficiency. Mm. So as you may know, carnitine is pretty much only found in, in animal products. There's a very tiny amount in a couple plant items with it, but, but it's for the most part, you're going to get it from animal products. And they showed that people with major depressive disorder had a significant sort of deficiency in carnitine. And we do, we, you know, it's something we internally synthesize, but we only can make so much, much of it comes from our dietary in, intake. So mm -hmm. carnitine would be one uh, candidate. I mean, we, we see also things like creatine. Creatine has been shown to improve uh, cognition and mental health in general, as does carnison. Again, these are all animal-based products. Uh, taurine also has an impact on, on, mm -hmm. on uh, brain physiology, which again, you can't get in plant products. Uh, you know, and then there's relative things, zinc and iron and things like that. Those are often not always, but often associated with, with deficiencies in plant-based diets. So there are, there are many, many things that are out there. Also, you know, cholesterol, you know, a plant-based mm. diet is devoid of cholesterol. And, you know, while our liver does make some of it, in fact, most of it, you can, you get more of it when you ingest it in a, in a, in a, you know, from, from your diet. And so all these things combined probably have a role and there's probably literally hundreds of things that I'm not naming that also have an impact. We know that like, for instance, beef has, it's been, been shown that beef has something like 50,000 individual nutrients, only mm. about 10% of which are found in plants. And so we only know what, you know, a few dozen of them actually do. The other thousands of them, we have no idea what they do. And, you know, so when you eliminate that, we don't even know what we're eliminating, quite honestly. Right. And it's, uh, so it sounds like there's obvious nutrient-specific deficiencies, maybe some gut dysbiosis that you're talking about from eating too much, maybe fiber and and lectin heavy legumes that that you know a, a michael grieger style diet might induce on yeah. a person basically um and that was you know that was 100 percent my experience um in terms of 
the low carb th- uh, aspect because this is something that's kind of relatively new in the carnivore sort of realm is this idea of an animal-based diet. And I'm, I think I heard you talking to someone on a podcast recently about some people who are maybe adopting the ideas of Ray Pete and they're starting to add literal sucrose to their diet. So maybe they're eating relatively meat-based and they're they're eating sucrose. What's your take on the utilization of carbohydrate on, on these animal-based diets? And what do you think they're getting right? What do you think they're getting wrong? Well, I think, you know, I, it, it's going to be individual to a degree. I think if you're metabolically healthy and a lot of people what we'll see is, you know, they're either very healthy to start with, or they get very healthy on a, on a meat-based diet. They eliminate everything. They lose weight, they get lean, they improve their overall health. Um, and then they find they're able to tolerate uh, some of these things in, in, you know, in the setting of exercise and, you know, that type of situation. So that's very different than, than, than a person who comes to you who's pre-diabetic, diabetic, obese, and, and then you say, let's just keep shoving in a bunch of sugar in there. Um, I think that, you know, certainly humans have demonstrated to be omnivorous. I mean, we're clear. I, I've never sort of challenged that. I think we tend to be facultative carnivores, which means we do better on meat, but we certainly can be, uh, you know, omnivorous. And, and, you know, in nature, a carnivore is anything that eats meat, and there's different percentages. Hypercarnivores are defined as 70% or more of your calories coming from, from, uh, uh, from meat, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so I think that, uh, one of the things that people sometimes get into trouble with, with, uh, adding, you know, whether it's fruit or honey or table sugar or Mexican Coca-Cola, <laughs> um, is that, you know, for some people that they, they just, I mean, there is such an overlying psychological aspect to why many of us eat and that sort of kind of dredges that up and, and these people get on this sort of slippery slope where you know it's it's a little bit and then it becomes a massive amount and then all of a sudden they find themselves back to where they were uh you know a huge swath of, of the population both here in the u.s and canada is either diabetic pre-diabetic or at least hyperinsulinemic and so those things again can can continue to to uh, drive that pathology um you know additionally uh you know there are still sensitivities that people have and you know i mean just because one guy can sit there and chow down on bowls of strawberries and blueberries and honey doesn't mean you may be able to do that that's one of the things with our company we're using ai to sort of figure out what diseases go with what sort of other foods and Mm. i think that's important to realize i think meat is a pretty um safe food for most people you know i mean just from pure physiologic standpoint now there's some people that through time, through age, through disease, through the use of things like proton pump inhibitors, you know, and they decrease their acid producing capacity, they have a hard time digesting it. And then some people have ethical issues and cultural issues. But I think, you know, if we were to take a blank slate and take some young, healthy kids and put them on on meat, they're not going to have problems for the most part because it kind of develops later in life. But some of these other foods, you know, whether it's certain types of wheat or certain you know fruits vegetables and certainly the processed food that we're all exposed to Mm. i think we have variable tolerances to that and that may be like for instance milk is a great one lactose you know some people are lactose intolerant Mm. some people aren't and that's just one of those things that's developed i mean we weren't exposed to lactose in any significant amount until about you know 10 12,000 years ago when we started domesticating uh some of these animals you know cattle and sheep and things like that and so that has sort of filtered its way through uh you know, different cultures. And, you know, some people were exposed to where, where grain was first evolved in, in, you know, the kind of the breadbasket of humanity in the Middle East. They may have a greater tolerance to that than somebody who maybe uh, grew up in Scandinavia or some Northern right. Europe where, 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 you know, that this wasn't something you could reliably get. So, yeah, I think that, uh, I think the belief, I mean, one of the beliefs is that uh, if you don't consume carbohydrates or sugar, you're going to have this uh, situation with elevated cortisol levels. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I was going to ask based on, Yeah, what that's really based on is there are some short-term studies looking at low-carbohydrate diets where cortisol does indeed go up. And part of that is because cortisol is one of our kind of regulatory hormones, so it helps to, uh, you know, increase our, our glucose levels. You know, you know, insulin stores everything and glucagon, cortisol, and, and, and adrenaline, norepinephrine tend to do the opposite. And so when you, when you restrict carbohydrates, Counter-regulatory hormones go up a little bit to, to make sure to ensure that you have adequate glucose. But it's been shown. In fact, there's a recent study by Joseph Whitaker just did this study showed that basically that effect lasts about three weeks. 
and then okay so, so, so after three weeks you kind of yeah, reach I mean, that baseline you know, level of yeah, cortisol so, and that's what we see like I, you know i've had people that have been on carnivore diets for a long time and you assess their cortisol levels and they're normal or you know uh, and, and there's different there's thoughts on too low of cortisol being a problem that not being able to produce a cortisol response because remember we never want anything to be zero i mean this mm. is the whole thing it's one of the problems with the low carb community they think glucose of zero you know or low as possible and insulin low as possible is the right thing well that's not true either it's there, there's there's always you know there's reasons things go up and down we all you know if, if it was bad for us our body wouldn't make it basically you know same thing with cholesterol things same thing with glucose we need that stuff it's part of mm -hmm. our physiology and to, to sort of you know tie it to one particular disease state and then say oh my god you know is this is one of those things if a little is good more is better or mm -hmm. if a little is bad then zero must be the answer and, and usually the truth is you know, not lies in between. Well, there's, there's even, um, the phenomenon of gluconeogenesis when you eat a certain amount of protein from meat as well, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, we're gluconeogenesis is always occurring and, you know, you can make a uh, glucose from basically any macronutrient. You can turn protein into, into glucose. You can turn fat into glucose. And of course, mm -hmm. carbohydrates are converted to glucose. And, um, you know, when you eat, a lot of it can be just glucagon. You know, there's a, there's a release of glucagon. Yeah. Protein simulates glucagon and, and insulin uh, uh, release. And so glucagon is going to act on the liver to break down the glycogen in your liver. So you have glycogenolysis going on. And that can, that can mm. occur pretty rapidly. Like, for instance, exercise, um, intense exercise can increase our rate of uh, liver production of glucose uh, 1,500%, you know, 1,500% uh, hmm. elevated. So you can, you can massively produce glucose when you need it. And so gluconeogenesis is definitely occurring. I mean, we, I mean, we, you can't avoid it when you go to bed at night, you know, that's there, that's where your glucose is largely coming from. Um, it's kind of a slower process. And so, um, I don't, you know, I think that because there's some studies looking at protein consumption, for instance, and you'll see a peak in glucose occurring when, when protein consumption exceeds about 75 grams in one sitting. Okay. Uh, and I think that's probably related to glucagon most, you know, quite honestly, because the way like a steak is digested, I mean, it spends four hours in your stomach and then it's going to spend, spend, depending on who you read, 12 to maybe 48 hours winding its way through your intestines while it slowly picks apart and dissolves all the peptides and, you know, absorbs all the amino acids, which are then converted to, you know, obviously structural, there's structural uses for protein and there's it's not just muscle, by the way, it's muscle, it's bone, it's skin, mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, nerves, it's it's neurotransmitters, it's hormones, it's, you know, the immune system. So protein has much more utilization. That's why one of the, one of the misconceptions about you can only consume 30 grams of protein at a time, otherwise it'll be weight. Well, that's not the truth. Mm -hmm. 30 to 50 will go to muscle protein synthesis, but the rest of it's still being utilized. And again, uh, these are all mostly studies done on whey proteins or other some kind of protein isolate, which has got a very different absorption right characteristic than than say a steak does mm -hmm. and and that's uh you know you're obviously a high level athlete and you you're a world record holder i think in indoor rowing right and you've you've competed at a high level at, at highland yeah. games as well yeah. and so and and one of the questions that i kept getting is um you know does does sean eat any carbohydrates to perform at these high levels because a lot of the activities like high level rowing that's extremely glycolytic that's super super high output anaerobic and and similar strength you know you're watching your you you do deadlifts and these heavy med ball tosses when you're working out and everything this is all glycolytic activity and the the question i keep getting is like how do you support that without the the consumption of carbohydrate yeah well but, i mean i think yeah clearly it's glycolytic i mean there's there's a there's a point of and it changes, you know, my, my threshold for, for switching over to glycolytic is probably a little higher than other people. So that is to say, probably at the lower level exercise, I'm still burning more fat than somebody else that might already be switched into the glycolytic system. Hmm. Um, I don't have zero glycogen in my muscle. I mean, like I said, protein, we, we have this gluconeogenesis going on and you get very efficient at it over time. So overnight, you know, I'm eating, you know, gosh, three, 400 grams of protein a day. I mean, and so that is, is eventually, you know, particularly overnight. Is, is refilling my muscle glycogen stores, my liver glycogen stores. Um, we know that from human and animal studies that occurs. Uh, again, it becomes more efficient as you, you know, stay away from carbohydrates. So I don't use carbohydrates for performance. Um, I, you know, I mean, there's various reasons why, why, why I chose not to. But um, the bottom line is, 
for what I do, you know, indoor rowing, uh, you know, world records, you know, Highland Games, strength, deadlifting, that's all very short duration. You, know, you think about it, you know, even a hard set of 20 rep deadlifts, it's going to take you maybe a minute, maybe, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe 90 seconds at most. Uh, same with some of the rowing stuff. And I've, and I've rowed for an hour or more. I've done that stuff. But I think where you get into issues is maybe if you're doing a marathon, I've got zero desire to do that. Maybe if you're doing CrossFit, but you're doing multiple workouts throughout the day, hmm. then you may struggle. But for what I do, I don't have any trouble at all with, with, with performance. I can do, I mean, I can literally do, uh, you know, uh, uh, some sort of sprinting workout in the morning and then maybe a weightlifting session in the afternoon and then go to jujitsu at night, all without carbohydrates um, hmm. and perform at a, at a, at a very high level. And, you know, like I said, um, part of it was, you know, I mean, as, as a carnivore athlete, this is when I broke all these rowing world records, but I mean, I've always been an athlete. I mean, I trained when I was eating an omnivorous, everything in sight diet. I set powerlifting records. I set, uh, track and field, uh, well, all American status in track and field. I, I won Highland game world, world championships, uh, doing that. So, I mean, I've always been, uh, you know, a high level athlete, but I will say that when I went from, you know, say age 40, five uh to age 50 for me you know I, I noticed a significant improvement in my performance my recovery uh my strength to weight ratio by going carnivore relative to omnivorous so i did see an improvement in my particular case and do you think the improvement in performance was just tuning your body to have a greater efficiency in producing its own glucose running on fat uh, maybe lower inflammation that's one thing that i noticed too was cutting I, i'm not 100% strict carnivore but cutting out a lot of foods that are you know quite inflammatory and difficult to digest and high in fiber like i ate very little fiber compared to what i used to and i just noticed a like again same thing huge spike in performance what do you think the going from, you know, omnivorous to car carnivore, where do you think that performance uptick? Yeah. So I, I think, you know, you know, when we look at the studies and they just look at pure output, you know, and energy, you know, energy dynamics that, you know, if, if, if you know, you do a study, like say you do a, a series of Wingate tests, you know, where you get in there and just all out 30 seconds. And I, I'm doing a bunch of those right now for fun. It's, 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 you know, I'm saying it. <laughs> <laughs> quotes, but that's for my training is a lot of Wingate type tests right now. Uh, but, you know, when you look at that and you just, you, you load some with carbohydrates, they're going to have a, maybe a little bit higher peak, um, uh, peak wattage, you know, you know, during that period of time, 5% different or something like that. And for the one individual event, it may have a difference. But when, if you look at the entirety of a training, like I'll use like a fighter, for instance, they may spend, you know, their camp maybe three, four months, you know, and they're training, they're training, they're training the whole time. And what ultimately results in the performance is the cumulative effect of every single day you did. And what I found, and maybe it's, maybe it's just because I'm older, you know, I've got too many, you know, I've been, I've, I've rode my body pretty hard over the years. And so I've got a lot of this, just, just things that, you know, if I, my diet falls off, yeah, my knee hurts, my back hurts, my, you know, I don't have the energy and I'm inflamed. And so what I found is one, I'm, I don't have as much inflammation. So I recover much better. I feel good all the time or most of the time. And so I'm just more willing to train. The other thing I found is that, you know, look, I mean, when we're eating, what is the point of eating? Was to provide nutrition to our body so that we can restore and build things and maintain things. And, and, and meat is just so efficient. I mean, when you're eating a bunch of vegetables, I mean, the fiber is interfering with the absorption of the other nutrients, the minerals, the, some of the proteins, some of the other, other uh, macronutrients. Um, and so it's just more efficient. So you get this great, tremendous efficiency of, of, uh, of building materials coming into your body. You have lower inflammation, better recovery, better sleep is what I've found. That all adds up. And so maybe that small performance advantage you get by eating the carbohydrates, at least in my case, is negated by more inflammation. You know, like I said, I don't want to train where my back hurts or my knee hurts. So I'm mm. not going to train as hard. Or I'm not going to train at all. And that's going to add up over time. And so maybe for an individual perform, and this may be a strategy that some people want to, want to employ is most of the time they train in a carnivorous state or a low carb state. And then just for one selected event, they'll add a little carbohydrate in to get that little bit of, a little bit of booster in that performance. And then they go back to, you know, training like they're, like they're, uh, uh, like they usually have. And that seems to work pretty well as all for, for many people. But I, I, you know, I know like, you know, from, from, gut physiology, you know, if you look at, let's just assume glucose is that fuel that's going to give you that, that little bit of extra benefit. 
well, we know that like, you know, you slug a big Gatorade, you know, 20 minutes before you perform, you're going to get a big glucose spike. You know, blood glucose may be 180 milligrams per deciliter, 140 or something like that. We're normally at 70 or 80. Uh, you don't get that effect by eating a steak. You don't get that immediate effect. But what you do get about three to five hours afterwards is, is a relative rise. And so you can kind of time it. So like when I won the world, the rowing world championships a couple of years back, I remember it was, I was in uh, California and they were being held in Long Beach. So it was something that, that I could make without having to fly across the world. And I was literally I'm not even an hour away from there. So I, I literally ate a, like a three pound tomahawk steak like four hours before I was supposed to row. I ate that and then I drove up there, you know, registered and hopped on the rowing machine and, and won the world, world championships. And, you know, I, I assume had I had checked my blood glucose, it probably would have been the highest it had been that day, you know, all day long just on that. So you can, you know, you can time it. The other thing that um, uh, with performance, you know, one of the nice things about carbohydrates is it hydrates you, you know, it, mm. it, you know there's this relationship between glycogen and water. But the other thing is that insulin tends to make you um, retain fluid, uh, retain salt, retain water. And when you eliminate that or not eliminate, but when you dramatically drop that, a lot of people end up being relatively dehydrated. So I just basically, you know, it's basically take fluid and, and salt or electrolyte in before I, before I compete. Mm. That also has a beneficial effect. I heard a really interesting theory about why some of the carnivore people who are zero carb for a while switched out to saying that they needed carbohydrate was because they were eat, consuming so many organs that were super high in copper, super high in these other minerals, and they end up causing this mineral imbalance that affects their hydration. And so they think that they need this insulin to start hydrating themselves from carbohydrate again. Basically, they, they, they're like, oh, I'm not hydrating myself. I'm developing electrolyte imbalances. Do you think an overconsumption uh, and this huge emphasis on organ consumption is actually shooting people in the foot on a carnivore diet? I mean, it certainly could be. I mean, I, I can't say for sure. Um, I know that, like I said, um, you know, I'm a physician. You know, I, I try to be scientific. Uh, but at some, at, 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 there's a point where... Um, there's people that have done this experiment. You know, in fact, the people that I sort of learned this from had been doing it for 10 years, 20 years. And they, you know, they, they, what they would say is, look, the organ meats are, you can eat them if you want them. They're not necessary. They're clearly not necessary. And what they would see is people would do that. They would get all excited and eat all the, you know, the organs. And then about six months, a year later, they would just stop. You'd never see them again because what happens is, and so maybe that's occurring. You know, I don't know. I mean, it could be, it'd be interesting to see. Um, I, you know, my take on that is if you want them, you can eat them. I mean, the data I have, I've got data on 12,000 people that did a carnivore diet, mm -hmm. only about 15% regularly consumed organ meats. And there was no difference in their outcomes as far as, you know, was reversal of disease, uh, getting off medications, feeling better, zero difference. In fact, Harvard University study, they looked at the same topic, you know, they, they write in the body of the text. We saw no difference in outcomes with regard to deficiencies or any other issues, whether you consumed organs or not. So they're not, in my view, they're not necessary. And there are some people that are sort of push that narrative. And some of them have a conflict of interest with selling supplements, yeah. in regard, you know, and so I, I just kind of, I just say, look, it's something that I don't feel you have to do if you like them and they benefit you go ahead. But yeah, I could see where, you know, there's sort of, I mean, you know, you think about it, you know, and no one knows for sure. Really no one knows for sure. I mean, we've got some modern examples of hunter gatherers that are living really subsistence lifestyles. I mean, these people are not, they don't have these big giant megafaunal animals to eat anymore like we did mm -hmm. literally 50, 100,000 years ago. And so they're, you know, like, you know, you look at the Hodge, a lot of people like to like to use the Hodge as models for, microbiome health and so on but they're running around chasing baboons yeah i mean that's not primo that's not primo food i mean that's that's the bottom of the barrel basically and so of course they're going to eat every part of that animal just because that's all they got and some of these people that are advocating organ consumption in a way that's not even consistent with animal anatomy i mean they're eating more liver than mm. than there isn't an animal i mean you know like i said if you, if you distributely eat you know, if you ate an animal nose to tail organ meats would still be a tiny, tiny part of that, you know, and then you have to realize that anyone that's ever been hunting, you know, when you got an animal, those organs don't last very long. I mean, they're going to mm. go bad very rapidly, whereas meat, you know, will just last longer. You can preserve it. You can eat it. And this is what humans did. I mean, clearly we know that humans would kill big animals and they would cut them up. They would dry them in the sun. 
Uh, they would either stick them in the snow up there in a cold environment, or they even stored them underwater. And they, those were all uh, well-known and well-accepted ways to preserve meat uh, that did that. So the organs would probably have been a small percentage of that. And so when you're eating in a subsistence situation, it's very different than you're eating in a surplus situation. I think early humans, again, this is, I don't have a time machine, but I mean, the evidence seems to point to that we were living in, in, in much of the case uh, in, a, in a surplus situation. So your choices, it's just like anybody, you know, when the fridge is full, you eat what you like, right? When then you right. kind of, you go, oh, I'm, I'm hungry. There's only thing left. I'll eat this, you know, kind of nasty thing I don't really like. And I think that's the same thing. I mean, there, you know, for, for some of us find, in fact, many people find that uh, a lot of these organ meats are not particularly palatable. And yeah. maybe there's a reason for that. Uh, it it, it kind of makes sense. You know, the one argument that I found kind of difficult when you're saying it's like, oh, well, the things that are palatable are evolutionarily kind of what we're, we're geared towards sure. seeking out, right? Um, the sugar thing kind of shoots us in the foot. Obviously, hyper palatable foods become like a major issue, right, uh, right. and it's 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 difficult. But you know, when you look at some of the anthropological data, and you're seeing how humans prioritized the meat and associated fat of these megafaunal animals, it's you know, th there's there's not a lot of anthropological data to say that we ate a ton of liver, and there's probably a reason that it doesn't taste very good. And that's you know, you can you can you can do with that speculation you know again like you said we don't have a time machine so we don't we don't know what our our ancestors were eating necessarily but um i did want to ask about fat content because this is a, a pretty common topic that's being talked about right now is this idea of uh, saturated fat versus polyunsaturated fatty acids right and i would assume that obviously grass-fed ruminant animals really high in saturated fats uh animals that are grain-fed like pigs and chicken and commercially raised cows are a little bit higher in polyunsaturated fatty acids. People are talking about how inflammatory uh, PUFAs are. Um, do you think that's a major concern in terms of health outcomes and even performance outcomes, or is that something that you worry about a little bit less? Uh, well, I think, you know, again, these are all things, you know, you know it's, it's always, you know, people want to put, uh, you know, the, the, the problem somewhere. Is it sugar? Is it seed oils? Is it saturated fat? I mean, and I think what we have to realize is, it's probably none of those in, in context. I mean, it's, it's food. I mean, we're eating food. No one just goes down to see, eat some bullet saturated fat, or hopefully no one's out there drinking gallons of canola oil, uh, or, you know, no, no one's in there in the, in the in eating raw sugar out of the, out of the cabinet. So I think those things, we just have to realize you have to put it in context. And so when I look at, you know, like, let's say for instance, you wanted to blame soybean oil for uh, the woes of society. And I think, you know, there, an argument can be made. I mean, certainly, uh, I don't care what you think we were eating a thousand years ago. It wasn't soybean oil. It didn't exist, right? So we know some of these things are new to the human uh, human existence and human diet. So you could say, well, it's a novel food, you know, and we've got all these new diseases or at least a, a, a higher prevalence of these chronic diseases. It's a likely candidate. Um, but is it is it is a problem that it's a seed oil or is it the problem that what are seed, seed oils in? And, you know, you look at where do you see, where do most people consume these things? highly processed, you know, kind of junk food, you know, it's just devoid of nutrition. It's high in calories, low in nutrition. And this may be that, it may be the representation of that. Uh, I know there's people who thought, well, it's extracted from hexane and maybe that's inflammatory. And I mean, I think all of those things can be true. Um, you know, do I, I don't consume them. I mean, I'm eating a meat-based diet. I'm not going to get much, I'm not going to get canola oil in my diet, really. Um, and, and again, we also have to realize, you know, when we talk about saturated fat, saturated fat is not just one entity, you know, it's, mm. you know, like for instance, most people don't realize beef is higher in monounsaturated fat than saturated fat. And as you get into the better marbled stuff, it, the ratio goes up even higher, more to a monounsaturated fat. So, uh, you know, it's, it's something that uh, has a lot more nuance and then saturated fat itself. I mean, which, which saturated, you're talking about steric acid, oleic acid, palmitic acid, you talk about the short chain, the medium chain fatty acids. I mean, there's all kinds of nuance here. And, and so when you paint everything with a broad brush, uh, you get into trouble. And I think it's, you know, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of studies on people just eating meat. We've got some, now they're, they're starting to, 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 to come out. And this is the thing I would say is, there may be a dozen papers, scientific papers on a carnivore diet that I'm aware of, and I've looked pretty hard. Every one of them, 100% show good results. 
So, I mean, if you're like trying to make a, an assumption, you would say, well, maybe that should be our hypothesis, you know, because all the, all, all the research papers on a carnivore diet show good results, show disease reversal, good health, low side effects, uh, people losing, you know, whatever, whatever metric you want to put in there, people generally get better. Uh, but people would rather use an epidemiologic study of people eating, you know, in the, for instance, the United States, how much beef do we eat per year? On average, about two, a little over two ounces. Two ounces of food a day is a tiny amount. That's a, that's a teeny tiny amount of our overall daily caloric consumption. And then you look at, you know, where does the bulk of our calories come from? It comes from highly processed, you know, junk food. It's like 60% of our calories. And so why would you blame beef, which is only two ounces for something that, you know, probably is, it's coming from this junk food and whether it's polyunsaturated fats or seed oils. Yeah. I mean, that's, I wouldn't be surprised if they have a deleterious effect for people, but I, but I, again, I, I have a hard time saying that's, that's the one thing, you know, if you just avoided that, everything would be great because probably that's not the truth. That, yeah, I mean, when you're trying to be that reductionistic about something as complex as nutrition and then applying that to something even more complex as health, right, that there's too many variables to ascribe one particular thing as the cause of all evil. Um, I had a, a viewer question here. Um, they were asking specifically how to deal with gallbladder issues from a high-fat animal-based diet. If they, if they have a gallbladder issue, can they still follow, uh, you know, an animal-based protocol where most of your calories for energy specifically are coming from fat? Yeah. And that's a, that's a good point. You know, a lot of people think it's a high protein diet or it's a, it's an all protein diet and, and really it's mostly fat. I mean, even, um, at the leanest, I eat probably minimum 40 or 50% of my calories are coming from fat, you know? And so like on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm usually consuming 60, maybe 70% of my calories from fat. So you do have that issue. And I think there's two issues. One, there's people that don't have a gallbladder. They've already had it removed. And what we see is, you know, the nice thing is that we still produce bile. And, and actually the, the common bile duct actually expands to accommodate a little bit more. Uh, it has a little bit of expansion. So it holds a little bit of a, it acts as kind of like a pseudo gallbladder. And so when you stimulate cholecystokinin mm. and the sphincter vodi releases through the ampulla vater and we get this, uh, bolus of bile that drops in to help us multiply the fat so that's still occurring now if you have a hot gallbladder you got a gallbladder that's filled with sludge or gallstones or something like that um yes stimulating it to contract with fat is going to cause pain potentially and you know how do you deal with that i mean you know what is causing it to to to, to do that in the first place Probably it was the junk food diet that you're on and, you know, maybe the, the, the sort of akinesis or the failure to contract because you weren't eating enough fat all along and you're eating this low fat artificial, you know, you know, uh, gluten free cardboard stuff and your gallbladder just sat there and it never contracted and you had all this, you know, this, this sort of uh, uh, solubilized cholesterol or, or other, other material and now it's just been sitting there and pooling and now it's now it's kind of precipitated out and what you should have been doing all along with regular fats your gallbladder is contracting on a regular basis to clear that stuff out but but it is what it is now and so what can you do um there are agents that you can take to help dissolve that stuff there's one, one called ursodiol and there's a few others out there on the market may take a while may take six months may take a year in the meantime what i would do is uh, you know kind of limit how much fat i get in, one, in any one particular meal so it might mean that instead of eating like two big meals a day, like I do, which is convenient for me, you might have to eat smaller meals with less total fat per meal. Mm. Um, so you can kind of minimize the symptoms that, and hopefully the gallbladder will recover. You might take some medications to dissolve that stuff. Or what happens to some people is they just get it removed. I mean, and it's, right. it's you know, and, and once it's removed, you can continue to go on. You might have to mod moderate how much fat you take initially. Uh, smaller dosages and and then kind of go with time to build up from that. Do you think supplements like ox bile would be particularly useful or do you think taking an exogenous bile wouldn't do much for your digestion? Um, I think the potential problems with that are, you know, um, I don't know that it's a bile deficiency for most people. For some, mm -hmm. for maybe a small percentage of people, it's an issue and it might be helpful. But I think for most people, what they do is they just take in this ox bile and it runs right through them and they have this bile acid malabsorption syndrome and they just end up with diarrhea. And so I, 
you know, I think it's, you know, maybe worth testing, but if you don't absorb it, it's, it's a waste of money. And, and so I think I've seen, I think probably more, more, probably more efficacious is something like a lipase or pancreatic enzyme, mm. you know, um, supplement because you, you know, that's something that's not going to, you know, be malabsorbed most likely. So those things probably have more, more efficacy from what I've seen. Right. So we have another viewer question here. Have you ever experienced uh, any clients who have resolved GERD and if they still experience GERD after making a switch to a carnivorous diet, is there a more specific protocol that they can have to help resolve that issue? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, so GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease is, you know, a system where a problem where stomach acid goes up in your esophagus and maybe into your mouth and stuff like that. It can be associated with coughing or voice changes or uh, just burning, you know, burning, burning sensation. And that's a problem. And typically how it's treated is we just suppress the acid. We take, we chew up antacids or we take proton pump inhibitors, which is a wrong, wrong way to treat this because what happens is it just makes you less efficient at digestion and you can't digest your food. And then you get all these deficiencies and then you end up with bone issues and on and on and on. And so why is the acid ending up in the, in the, in the esophagus? It's not the problem that you have acid. Acid is actually good. We, we need it. We make it, our body expends a tremendous amount of energy to make that acid for reasons. It's because it supports our digestion. But why is it ending up in the esophagus? Well, it's ending up in the esophagus typically due to pressure. Where is that pressure coming from? The pressure is often coming from just uh, either you ate so much that you just filled your stomach up, which is pretty uncommon, but more often than not, it's just air. It's just air mm -hmm. pressure from gas being elicited from things that are highly fermentable, fibers and sugars, things like that. And so that causes your guts to blow up. You know, if anybody, you know, you've had distension or gas after a certain meal, maybe a big old salad, all of a sudden your guts blow up. Well, that pressure goes both up and down. So it'll go out the back end, but it can, it can push out the front end. And it basically blows that low, lower esophageal sphincter valve that sits at the top of your stomach between that and your, your esophagus. And once that valve is blown open, the food contents and acid go back up in your esophagus. Um, so generally removing fibers and all these other sort of highly fermentable uh, foods helps with that. Sometimes people on a carnivore diet uh, will still develop that. And usually what I've seen is it's, it's usually too, too high of a fat content, similar with the mm. gallbladder. And they end up still having some bloating and nausea and and that gas is causing the reflux and so generally once again limiting the amount of fat per meal you know so it, so you may still need like let's just say your minimum requirement for fat is 150 grams a day which is pretty typical on a carnivore diet you may only be able to tolerate 50 grams at one sitting without getting the reflux so you might so then that means you just basically have to break it up into three meals and so that's how we typically approach that rendered fats can sometimes have issues for people with bloating. And so rendered fats would be cooked down bacon grease or ground beef, beef, you know, stuff like that, or lots of butters and creams and, you know, just concentrated liquid fats. So if you can avoid that or minimize that in that situation, that can be beneficial. So focusing more on whole food fats from say like whole steaks. Yeah. So like, you know, you get a, you, you get like a marble steak or you get a steak, a little brisket with some fat on it. And just mm -hmm. that's where you get your fat from. And it's going to be a little, it's still kind of semi-solid, so it's going to take longer to break down and digest, and so it won't, won't cause uh, the GI disturbances as much. Right. doesn't hit your system all at once. Um, last last uh, audience question here. Assuming the person has a healthy metabolism, do you think it's appropriate for someone who doesn't want to be on the carnivore diet long-term to include some sort of plant foods maybe once a week so that they don't develop in, in, like sensitivities uh, to specific foods? Like, Is there... It, I'm going to phrase it as like, do you think there's either a positive hormetic effect or do you think there's a positive uh, microbiome effect from including the occasional foods if a person doesn't want to be super strict long-term? Sure, sure. I think, I think, I think there's no wrong. I mean, I think uh, like a, a meat diet, on all, you know, a meat-based diet in no junk food and other food is, is fine for a lot of people. You know, I think, you know, meat plus fruit or meat plus fruit and some vegetables or some other whole food is, is a great diet for a lot of people. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, just because I choose not to do that or I help people that don't do that doesn't mean it can't be the right thing for you. I think I think more than anything, just realizing that meat is a health food, uh, the more we eat of it, probably the better we're going to do in most cases. And so those other things can make, yeah, it can make it more sustainable. It can make it more palatable. Hey, I use spices on my food just to give it a little more variety. And it doesn't seem to bother me, but that's a caveat. You want, you want to be objective about it and see what 
you know, I mean, sure, I'd like I'd like to eat chocolate cake every day, but I mean, it's not good for me. <laughs> I mean, I mean, eventually, it's not good for me. And so, mm-hmm. uh, I would say, you know, you know, if it's if it's going to be something that's going to keep you on a mostly meat based diet, assuming that's working for you, then then that's fine. You know, I think that's there's nothing wrong with high quality protein, high quality fats, um, you know, very good digestibility, all you know, make for, you know, if you do a 90% carnivore diet or 70 or 80, you know, the the data we had, so we had data on, you know, people doing a diet from 70% up to 100%. And we saw, you know, the difference between 90 and 100% wasn't that great, you know, for the, Mm. for the average person, the difference between 70 and 80 was, was pretty decent, you know, from 80 to 90, it was still good, but not as much. And then from 90 to 100, it was, you know, 5% difference. Now, within that subset, you know, there's people with severe autoimmune issues where, where that was, significant so they had they that would that didn't make it there but for the average person maybe they just you know they're generally doing good maybe they got a little bit of weight to lose you know going 80 90 percent carnivore is generally going to be helpful for those people and then they just have to see what that 80 percent what that 20 percent of that 10 percent um consists of that, that, that actually is not harmful to them and w- w- that was the study that you guys did with harvard recently wasn't it uh so or, Harvard, did a, Harvard did a survey study on 2,000 people doing a carnivore diet. Nice. And, you know, when you look at the, when you look at the food frequency, I mean, they, you know, it was basically 95% all meat for the most part. I mean, there were some eggs and a little bit of dairy in there, but it was yeah. 95% animal product. Some people were 100%. Uh, it ranged from six months to up to 28 years people were doing this. And so we had a wide range of people doing that. And, uh, yeah, it just, it just showed uh, good outcomes across the board. Do you find there are certain factors that determine whether or not a person is successful long-term, not in terms of like the health outcomes, but in terms of adherence long-term to a carnivore diet? Is there, is there a difference in, in psychological profile or health profiles? Like what's the difference in the people that stick with it long-term? Well, I think there's a couple aspects that are going to predict, you know, predict uh, success. And one is, you know, um, getting some level of benefit early on so noting you know noting some improvement Hmm. two is a you know just a just a mental health mental buy-in you got to believe like anything there's there's a there's a mental side of this thing if you don't think something's going to work it probably isn't going to work so you have to sort of do that and then i think support having um a supportive environment whether it's from your family your friends your work environment your physicians or an online community which is what we we provide um, has been very, very much uh, a, a predictor for success. Even in our survey, we asked, you know, family and physician support or no support. And the people that, that, that answered support had about a 25% likelihood increase for being successful. And the people that didn't have support, 25% less likely to, to, to be successful, which is significant. Um, I think, you know, uh, in my experience, having someone that can kind of guide you a little bit has been helpful just because, you know, there's people that will just sit there and they'll just, okay, I'm gonna do a carnivore diet. I'm going to eat just plain old ground beef for the next 10 years. <laughs> and they sit down <laughs> and they do that for three or four days. And like, this sucks. I'm not doing it. And, you know, I'm, I'm just, and I wouldn't do it either. I mean, I, you know, when I, you know, I talk to people and the other thing is I think realizing th- and this is an, actually a very important part why are you, you know, assuming this is a health related reason, which is why most people do this. No one that's in great health feels good is going to restrict their diet. I mean, they're not going to, why would you, I mean, Mm. this doesn't make sense. So most of what we're we're seeing is people that have some issue with their health. Maybe it's obesity, maybe it's diabetes, maybe it's food addiction, but almost all of them have this kind of uh, sort of, I would call it normal, but pathological relationship with food. That is to say, we're not eating because we're hungry. We need nutrition. We're eating because we're bored. We're stressed out because we're watching TV because it's five o'clock and you're supposed to eat now. And I mean, there's so many reasons we eat that aren't nutritive. And so, I mean, just figuring out to, to sort of redefine your relationship for, for food to eat because you require nutrition. That's not to say you can't enjoy it. I can tell you very much, you know, just before we did this podcast, I ate a bison ribeye and a, and a New York strip, prime grade New York strip. And I loved it. It was incredible. I was just oh, I'm loving my food. <laughs> I really enjoy it. But, you know, at the same time, um, you know, some people would say, well, that's a, that's, that's a, that's a restrictive diet or something like that. Mm. Um, but, but so figuring out how to, how to change that and going from, um, I can't walk through a room 
that has a plate of cookies on the counter without taking one or, right. you know, or, or if I'm hungry, God forbid, I'm hungry and has a plate of cookies in a room, then that thing's going to be demolished. Right. And I, and I did that. I mean, I, I remember as a surgeon, I'd walk through the break room, somebody bringing a big old box of Krispy Kreme donuts, you know, you know, it's crap, but you know, you walk through there three or four times, you start getting hungry and it's like, Oh, no, sure. I'm just going to have one. And then all of a sudden that one turns into six, you know, and, <laughs> You know, you're like, oh, what did I do? And you never feel good about it. But but breaking away from that sort of situation and, and understanding that you need to do that. It's not that you can never have a Krispy Kreme donut or a piece of cake or a piece of dark chocolate the rest of your life. But you've got to be able to sort of, you know, realize that, that this the food is driving your behavior. And, you know, you, you know, there's people that will, you know, remember there's a little commercial, what would you do for a Klondike bar? You know, I <laughs> yeah, well, I'd, you know, I'd scale them out, you know, because I want to. I want to, you know, because they're literally addicted to this stuff, mm. you know, and so you've got to get away from that mindset that, you know, hell, I, I don't need that shit. But, you know, not to think that I'm going to be a monk the rest of my life and never eat anything else. So if you can kind of come to terms with that and just get on a, a generally healthy pattern and say 95% of the time you're eating a good diet, once in a while you go off it, you realize it and you just take it for what it is and you get right back back to the grind. You know, it's like working out. I mean, you know, sometimes we train and we have some really good training sessions and every once in a while we're just, you know, we don't do, we just don't take some time it, yeah. off. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. Well, Dr. Baker, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast today. I, I learned a lot actually. And, and I'm someone who spends a ton of time researching this stuff. Anyway, I've read your book like three times and I've watched every new video that you've been putting out. Uh, you can find all your work on YouTube right now by searching Sean Baker. You're on Instagram at Sean Baker, 1967. Uh, there's carnivore.diet is the platform that you have, right? So if you actually type in like the actual URL instead of .com is carnivore.diet. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so we've got, we've kind of got Rivero.com, which we are going to be, that's going to be our full medical platform, which we've raised investment dollars for. That's going to be full service medical. So if you want a physician, it's going to be deprescribing mm. medications and all that stuff. Carnivore diet is for people interested in a carnivore diet and want the community there. So both things are going to be running simultaneously, but one is going to be provide that full service medical, which is what Rivero will be doing. So, yeah. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for joining me. This was the Art of Fuel podcast. If you guys are watching on YouTube, please like, comment, subscribe. If you're listening on Spotify or iTunes, leave a review. Let me know how you liked it. And you can follow me at The Body Moves on Instagram. Follow the other podcast account at The Art of Move. And then follow Sean at Sean Baker 1967. Thank you so much, Sean. This was great. I appreciate it. Thank you.